This morning, we are continuing to explore the statement of faith of the United Church of Christ. As I've mentioned, this is not a list of doctrines. It is a story. It's even organized and written in story language with God as the main character. I told you the first week, this statement is not a fence that defines our boundaries. This statement is the campfire that lights our center. This statement articulates the beliefs most commonly held among us. And so some folks huddle up right close to the light and the heat, and some folks are comfortable standing a bit further off. And that's okay, because this statement is designed to be a center and not a boundary. And so that means there's a lot that it doesn't say. In fact, this morning's section is the shortest in the entire statement, and it leaves room for a whole lot of interpretation. So before we get into it, I just want to remind you that is a good thing. If we wanted to make a narrow list of things that you have to accept in order to be right or good or saved, we could do that. Others have. But that's not what we're trying to do. We are not trying to figure out who's in and who's out. We are trying to tell a logically consistent and life-giving version of the Christian story that allows each individual the space to listen to the Holy Spirit and to discern their own particular convictions about the specifics of this story. There is a lot of room here, and that's a good thing. So here we go. The statement begins, We believe in God, the eternal spirit, who is made known to us in Jesus our brother, and to whose deeds we testify. And then we have seven sections of what those deeds of God are. What is God doing? Notice they are all written in the present active tense. God is doing these things currently. First, God calls the worlds into being, creates humankind in the divine image, and sets before us the ways of life and death. Reverend Marshall Cook shared, us, shared with us about that last week. This week, God seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. God seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. There's a lot in those 13 words, and there's a lot that is not in those 13 words. And we basically need to talk about every single word because they're all important, and because I don't want to end the sermon talking about sin, we're going to start at the end and work our way backwards. So first, Sin, singular, not sins, plural. We're talking about the overarching concept, not particular actions. The word sin is a classic word in our faith, one that has been used and abused. One that many people are uncomfortable with because of how it has been used, but I still feel it's essential. 
Very simply, sin is our way of saying something is wrong here. Something is wrong here. If everything were fine, we wouldn't need God. And we certainly wouldn't need Jesus. But everything's not fine. Everything's not fine with our society. Everything's not fine with the way our country relates to other countries, except maybe during the Olympics. Everything's not fine with the planet. Everything's not fine with me and with my own relationships. Something is wrong here. It includes me, but it's way bigger than me. It is systemic, and I'm part of it. I can't fix it on my own. And if we look around, we have to admit that we, collectively, can't seem to fix it on our own either. It's important to remember that the reason we can even recognize that something is wrong is because we were created for goodness. Remember last week, God creates humankind in the divine image. If we did not have goodness and beauty and dignity at our core, we wouldn't recognize that anything was wrong. But we are good. And so we can clearly see the bad in ourselves and in the world. The statement doesn't say where sin comes from. There are several ways to talk about that. It doesn't, it doesn't even say specifically what sin is. But if we need God to save us from it, it must be something that includes us as individuals and transcends us, including all relationships and all systems. Something is wrong, and we can't fix it on our own. But according to this statement, sin is not the only thing that's wrong. The other thing that God seeks to save us from is aimlessness. Interesting word, huh? This statement was crafted in 1959, and the team specifically chose this word to be a representation of something more personal and less theological than the big concept of sin. Aimlessness. The sense that my life doesn't have any meaning. That it isn't going anywhere. The sense that the whole universe is one big roulette wheel going around and around and around in circles. That life has no meaning. Post-World War II, with the threat of nuclear holocaust looming and tectonic shifts in American culture on the horizon, it is easy to see why the word aimlessness would have resonated for the folks who crafted this statement. But I think it still resonates. It is still way too easy to feel like nothing really matters. That you just can't get ahead that you just can't figure it out. That maybe there really is no purpose to everything. 
But the Christian story says that's not true. Our lives do matter. And we've already touched on this, but the statement is specific that all people experience aimlessness and sin. All people, which is not quite the same as saying each person. Aimlessness and sin are universal problems experienced by each of us individually, yes, but also by all of us together. We are each and all created in the divine image, and we are each and all together caught in aimlessness and sin. So what is the solution? Salvation. God seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. Another big theological word that has been well used and well abused over the centuries. In the Old Testament, the concept of salvation includes stories of being rescued, like the ancient Hebrews rescued from slavery in Egypt. It includes stories of being healed. And it includes stories of being victorious over one's enemies. The metaphors of salvation in the Old Testament are rescue, healing, and victory. In the New Testament, there are five different metaphors for how God saves us. And none of them can fully describe the mechanics of what happens between God and us. I think that mysterious relationship, that amazing grace, just transcends our capacity for language. We're just never going to get our minds and our words totally around that. And so this statement is not specific. But it is content to rest in the assertion that we are rescued from, healed from, and victorious over aimlessness and sin. In later weeks, we'll get a little bit closer to the answer of how it happens, but it's never going to be a technical description. This week, we can say that the vehicle for salvation, the way it is accomplished, is through holy love. Not just any kind of love. Holy love. This is helpful because in the English language, we ask those four letters, L-O-V-E, to do some pretty heavy-duty lifting, to carry a lot of meaning. So this statement says that it is holy love that motivates God. Love beyond friendly affection. Love beyond sexual attraction. We could say that holy love is sacrificing love. I'm sure that each one of you has someone of whom you would say, I would rather suffer than have that person suffer. I'd rather be sick than have Sammy be sick. I would rather be sad than have Sam be sad. I'd rather take it on myself. That is holy love. That is the love that God has for us. 
Because ultimately, and this brings us back to the beginning of the section, I told you it was short. This is about what God is doing. God speaks. In holy love. To save all people from aimlessness and sin. God speaks. God speaks. This salvation is not instigated by us. It doesn't happen because we make it happen. It doesn't even happen primarily because we ask for it. It happens because God offers it. And more than offers it, God comes looking for us in order to give it. World history is full of religions that describe how humans can get to God. The Christian story is about how God comes to us. Right from the very beginning, in Genesis 3, God comes to the garden in the cool of the evening because God likes to walk and talk with the humans that God made. And when God can't find them because they're hiding, God starts speaking. Where are you? God says. I'm looking for you. Because I love you. Because I enjoy you. Because I want to help you. Because you are trapped and I want to rescue you. Because you are sick and I want to heal you. Because you are suffering and I want to give you victory. We don't first come to God. First and foremost, and this is revolutionary, God speaks us. I told you it was a short statement. God speaks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. These are big concepts. And we could have used many different scriptures to talk about them because we find these themes all through the Bible. But this morning, I want to end with a reading from the prophet Isaiah. This is an invitation from God. You're going to hear some of the themes that we talked about this morning, but not all perfectly, specifically. The point is not that this scripture describes exactly what's happening. I invite you this morning to let these words and these images wash over you. So would you settle in this morning and begin to listen for this? You may want to close your eyes, or you may want to find something to focus on in this beautiful scene. Release any tension that you're holding in your body. Unclench your jaw. Let your tongue drop away from the roof of your mouth. And then relax your shoulders. Put your feet flat. Put your feet, the soles of your feet, ground them into the earth. 
Take a deep breath. Breathe in God's spirit, God's wind. Open your heart and receive this invitation from the God who seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. This is from Isaiah chapter 55. All of you who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come. Buy food and eat. Without money, at no cost, buy wine and buy milk. Why spend your money for what isn't food and your earnings for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Enjoy the richest of feasts. Listen and come to me. Listen and you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Seek the Lord while God can still be found. Call him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon their ways. Let the sinful abandon their schemes. Let them return to the Lord so that he may have mercy on them. To our God, because he is generous with forgiveness. My plans are not your plans, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my plans higher than your plans. Just as the rain and the snow come down from the sky and don't return there without watering the earth, making it conceive and yield plants and providing seed to the sower and food to the eater, so it is my word that comes from my mouth, says God. It does not return to me empty. Instead, it does what I want. It accomplishes what I intend. And so you will go out with joy. And you will be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. In place of the thorn, the cypress tree will grow. In place of the nettle, the myrtle bush will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever.
Now I'll pray a closing prayer. God of holy love, we trust that you will do what you intend. We trust that your purposes for us and the world are good. And we entrust ourselves to you. Open our hearts and our minds. Open our eyes. To see your salvation. And to be part of carrying that message to the ends of the earth. Amen.